This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. Good morning, garden lovers. This is the 3CR Garden Show and I'm Virginia Hayward. With me are Pete Harris, grower of peonies, begonias and much more, Stephen Ryan, Dixonia Rare Nursery, Rare Plants Nursery. Good morning, lads. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning, Virginia. And it's wet again. Yes. How good's that? (laughs) Yes, you know, we're, we're girding our loins for supposed dry, hot summer, but if we can get a little bit more rain like this to take us through Christmas... I'll be a very happy man. Just as the ground was starting to dry out and the, and the grass dry off, mm. down it comes. Takes the pressure off us again, doesn't it? Oh, yes, just for that wee while. It's lovely. So I'm very happy with the rain. It is interesting, though, because we, uh, Stephen and I are both members of Plant Trust and some of our Plant Trust members have got very, very dry gardens. Yeah. It's very, very particular. Oh, yes. I think it's come through on a narrow band, this particular um, front. I think so, but I think generally, I think the rain has been particular. I mean, the Yarra Valley is quite wet; it's still green. Yeah, yeah well, certainly a... not out around Macedon. Um, the paddocks out there have all brown. They've, they've cut hay. They've yeah. cut hay. They've fin- and there's probably people out there whinging because the rains come just before they've cropped. But anyhow, yep. we can't please everybody. And as a gardener, I'm quite happy about it. So. No, the, mm. oh, the great people around me are actually spraying furiously. They're oh, not yes, happy. for the mildew, mildew. and stuff. Yeah, mm. yeah, I could see that. In fact, it's last few days, there's been quite a lot of mist and things down as well. It's been almost autumnal. It's been really weird. We've so, been sitting at home watching Mount Massenden and that fog has been hanging around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's really strange. It's weird weather patterns. Uh, and when I say it's almost autumnal, it's also... I don't know, when you get those downpours like we had the other day, um, it almost feels like I'm in the tropics as well. It's really strange. Well, on Friday night, I had lovely, smooth, gentle rain and about, and I'm sitting watching television, minding my own business and crack Uh-oh. right outside the back door. A huge piece of tree. And then half an hour later, crack. Another one. Another huge piece of tree. What, what sort of tree? Eucalypt. Eucalypt. Mm. And right over the garden, both of them, um, I'd planted, I'd moved a tree about 10 days earlier. Well, it's been knocked out of the ground, so I think that's the end of it. Oh, dear. I, and, of course, both of them are too big. I can't move them. No, They're you've got to get big. somebody to chop them up. 
friends with chainsaws? Well, I've got a chainsaw. I've got a bit of a rule. I don't know if it's unnecessary, but my rule is I don't use the chainsaw if I'm on the property on my own. I think it's probably a good rule. Um, you know, if something goes wrong, you need somebody around. So I think it's a good idea if you're using equipment to know that there's at least a backup somewhere. So if you've got your own chainsaw, yes, you know, invite a friend around. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't do anything about it yesterday mm. and I will crack into it. Mm. But it's going to be... I hate to think what's underneath it, what's mm. flattened. Yes. <laughs> Funnily enough, it's surprising sometimes how often things bounce back once you get the branch off, though. I mean, yes. a newly moved tree doesn't no, sound good. No, because I can see its roots. Yeah, so that doesn't sound like a good thing. Um, but it's surprising how other shrubs and things will often bounce back quite quickly. Um, quick, run over with, quick run over with secateurs. They'll yeah. be happy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so there you go. And I assume it wasn't windy. No wind. No, and that's often the case with eucalypts. They'll shed branches when it's dead calm. Yeah. But that's, that's a self-preservation thing because they're dry. So mm. they, they shed um, limbs and hence the nickname Widowmakers. Mm. And, and um, a, a funny thing out in um, the Hepburn Shire is they have put Widowmakers, they've lined the, the new cemetery with them. And, and I oh, well, yeah, but who's going to kill in the cemetery? <laughs> yeah, but the, the fact that they've, they've put Widowmakers in the cemetery. Yeah. Well, I, they're, I, they're I, probably trying to make some... Per- perverse side of me. No, I don't think that's perverse. I think it's extremely appropriate. Yes, yes. It's funny because speaking of cemeteries, our little local cemetery, uh, I've got a plot down there. Well, so's Craig, so's two of my siblings. Mum and Dad are already down there. Um, And we selected sites because it was under a large, big and handsome gum tree. We thought a little bit of shade in the summer, a bit of high ground, nice view of Mount Macedon, you know, all those things. Um, Very important when you're dead. Yeah, when you're dead. And anyhow, so Craig was walking through the cemetery one day and our gum tree had disappeared so um, we rang the secretary of the uh, of the um, cemetery trust and said Margaret our tree's gone and she said oh yes we had an arborist in and he said it was dangerous and I said who does it kill in a cemetery which didn't go down terribly well but then she gave me permission to plant a tree which was fantastic, except I spent about three years paralysed by choice. Uh-huh. <laughs> it took me ages to make a decision. It had to be something tough and hardy that was going to go on and on and on. The soil down there is really ordinary. It's sort of a yellowy clay with pebbles in it, so it's not exactly the best soil in the world. And I wanted something that was a bit interesting and different that you don't see around everywhere, being the rare plant collector that I am. And so, of course, I, I kept vacillating about what I was going to put in there. My long-term plan is to have something rare enough that it'll eventually end up on the heritage tree list so nobody can touch it. Uh, So I had all these things rattling through my head and it was at least three years, it might have even been longer, before I made the final decision and I planted a Japanese domio oak, uh, Quercus dentata, which has the biggest leaf in the genus. Very handsome tree and it should grow well down there in that awful soil. Uh, And it's been in, well, I planted it, fortuitously just before the La Nina set in. So it's had three damp seasons to get itself established. And it's fantastic. It's now about two and a half, three metres tall. Would uh, any Japanese plant be good in a very dry, hot summers with north winds? It sounds like it wouldn't, but oaks are surprising. Um, even oaks that come from climates that are much more benign than we have here are often more than hardy enough to cope. And so the domio is doing exceedingly well, and I assume it will do well through the drier seasons as well now that it's got its roots down. There are more oaks in Mexico than anywhere else on Earth. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a huge genus. 
So the law of averages, Steve, we're going to have you around to about 140, 150. Yeah, that's, that's the So plan. there'll be a nice shade tree for you. Yeah, well, Perfect. exactly. Yeah. So, well, I'm hoping to live long enough for it to become something of a shade tree before I have to shuck off my mortal coil. Um, but um, it's, it's sort of, it's something I'm quite proud of because I've planted something that'll hopefully be there into the future and something interesting that hopefully people will come past and go, oh, that's an interesting oak. I've never seen that one before. And the plaque will read. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've already got a plaque against an oak tree, but it's not in the cemetery. <laughs> but my plaque will end up there and, uh, and I've got it all sorted. I do love oak trees. I think they are oh, very special. They they're, are. They're beautiful. They're just majestic, aren't they? Yeah. they? They take a long time to do it, but once they've got it there, mm. yeah. wow. Beautiful but trees. oaks here that lose their leaves very thoroughly in Britain don't seem to lose them here as mm. thoroughly. It's interesting, isn't it? There's there's a drive through Memorial Drive in Kyneton and, I'm um, sorry, no, just out of Wood End, and two-thirds of those pin oaks up there, Quercus palustris, mm. they don't lose their leaves at all. Mm. They colour, but, but they hold yes. their leaves. And then they um, have to be pushed out by the next, like a beach. Yeah, mm. yeah. so, uh, yeah, I think oaks are underrated trees. And, of course, in country areas they're useful too because they're quite fire retardant. Mm. So if you're trying to sort of give yourself a little bit of fire protection, then you could do far worse than plant planting oaks. So they are very useful that way as well. So anyhow, that was a completely unexpected aside we ended up in, but there you go. <laughs> well, I, I do think with, with the oaks, when they come down in the botanic gardens now, they plant oaks from much warmer climates yeah. out mm. of respect or acknowledgement of the mess we're in and the, the world yeah, well, is going Yeah, well, that big white oak much, that came down. Uh, it's been planted. replaced by two Mexicans yeah. and a Texan. Yeah, so... Logical, very logical thing to do. And the other thing about that oak that is so interesting is it's been growing better than they expected. I mean, mm. they're growing really well, the new ones, and they suspect it might be because the old one wasn't ripped out, grubbed out and got rid of and tidied up, mm. this obsession with making gardens tidy. So all the mycorrhizae and everything that were there with the old oak yeah, are still, still in place. there. Yep. Yeah. And so I've managed to transfer to the new Quite probably I mean, it makes whether, sense. It makes sense yeah. whether this is the reason, but there is. I do think we have an obsession with being too tidy oh, and not thinking yeah. about the soil and what's in the soil. Yeah. yeah so I've got into the habit out. lately of um, stumps and things that I would have normally thrown into the fire as firewood and things, hiding them in the back of borders and things where they're not visible, but then they can just be allowed to slowly rot down and, and put back into the garden. Mm. Um, so anything that won't go through the shredder ends up going that way mostly. And they're quite useful for insects. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. And, and the little fungi that grow on them. They're yeah. so cute. Well, as a guide in the botanic gardens, one of the things I love about the white oak is I can now talk to people about fungi mm. because it's covered in, yeah. in yep. those lovely orange bracket fungus, yeah. which are just so – it's so good to be able to talk to people about that. And you can't just say, oh, I think you should leave things to rot because – I mean, if you have the bracket fungus to show them yeah. and it's beautiful, it makes sense. That's Mother Nature at its best, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all working. Mm. Yes. Oh, dear. All right. Well, we, we started off in all sorts of different directions. Um, are we going to do some announcements? We probably should. We have – we don't have many. Don't we? Oh. There's – well, it is – we yes, are getting heading on towards. for Christmas. Yes, you're right. One thing I do need to remind listeners is that we go into a, a month of rest in January and what we're going to do over the end after Christmas and January is play the best of the, of the shows from the last year. 
That's a good idea. I'm quite looking forward to it because we've had some very, very good shows this year. Yeah. And we all miss bits. And mm. some of them are good enough to listen to again. Oh, of course they are. Mm. I think. So that is something that's coming. And also next week we won't be on air because it's disability, It's International Disability Day. Ah, right. Oh. So we won't be on air. The, the whole station will be taken over for Disability Day. Mm-hmm. But the week after that, AB will be back. The week after that, Chloe will be here. And then we go into our summer break. So do listen over the summer, everybody, because I think it'll be worth... We've, we've thought about which programs mm. we're putting on, so I think you'll probably enjoy them. Oh, good. Which is good. And because Christmas is coming up, at the Botanic Gardens, there's a botanical art market on the 2nd and 3rd of December at Mueller Hall. So that's um, all sorts of original artworks. So if you're looking for a Christmas present, Birdwood Avenue, Mueller Hall at the Botanic Gardens... 2nd and 3rd of December. Ah, good. And that actually is a great segue into another botanic art show that's on at the moment, which I've been meaning to talk about, and that's the Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens have got their biennial art show on at the moment. It runs every day except Sunday, right through to about the 9th of December, Uh, and it's at the Deakin University Waterside Gallery, so it's right down on the edge of the the bay. And... uh, there's some wonderful works there uh, from the School of Botanic Art in Geelong. So there's some of the tutors' works, there's students' works, there's past students' works, and I think there's well over 100 works that you can go and have a look at. And I think it's 10 till 4.30 or something like that, or 10 to 4, but closed on Sunday. Um, and uh, if you're interested in botanic art and you want a day out, Geelong's always a nice place to go. And it's not a long hike down the freeway anymore. No, the, no. the road works are uh, just about finished up yeah. through there. And you can go to the Botanic Garden. Gardens. There's lots of good eateries in Geelong, so you can have a lovely day. And it's a lovely botanic gardens. It it's is. I love the Geelong view. Botanic Gardens, as I should, being patron of the Friends of the Botanic Gardens. Uh, so what can I say? Uh, so, yes, yeah, so there's that as well. So that's on at the moment. And Craig? And speaking of botanic art, yes, my partner Craig is uh, part of a group of 10, I think, artists who have got open studios this weekend. So it was on yesterday, it's on again today. So if you're heading towards the Macedon Ranges, um, uh, you'll see signs out with, you know, artist studio on them pointing you in different directions. And there's people who are ceramicists, there are people who do um, silk dyeing, there are painters, there are sculptors, all sorts of different people that are opening their studios today. So Craig will be uh, at 8 Centenary Avenue uh, in Macedon uh, with his botanic artwork. So if And you want... will he have indications of where the other ones are? Uh, yes, he will be able to pass you on to the next one and you can get a brochure from the, um, I think Craig's got some at home anyway, but uh, the gallery next to my nursery uh, is sort of the headquarters for this group and they will have brochures there as well if you want to pick up one of the brochures to take you all around the different artists' um, studios, which is a great way to see how people work. I think it's really nice to see that sort of thing going on. And it's also sometimes quite difficult to find local artists Mm. because they're not going to be in the big galleries in Melbourne or whatever. So it's a wonderful Mm. way to see local work Good for Christmas shopping. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Potentially. Uncle so, yeah. Stephen, I'll give you my list now. Yeah, all right, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, so that's on this weekend as well. So if you're out and about today, you might like to go up to Macedon and do the artist's gallery route around the mount. And, of course, next weekend, 
Open Gardens Victoria are having their last Open Garden, I think, for yeah, December. I think for December, yes. And yeah. that is also going to be at Mount Massive. Yes, so my garden, so Tagurium, 8 Centenary Avenue, 10 till 4.30 both days. And again, it'll be signposted from Mount Macedon Road. So parking's in Marshall Avenue. And the garden is actually going to look quite good. I think I started to get a bit panicky before the rain because I was watering like mad trying to keep things looking turgid. And uh, now that we've had the rain, everything's going to be looking lovely and green and, and gorgeous. And there is another interesting garden and as well. Exactly. So there's, it's worth doing because there's two. So apart from anything else, you've got my garden and then and Craig will have his art on display there as well next weekend. Uh, and uh, Calum, which is in 3 Church Street, Macedon. Which well, is quite close to your place. Four minutes by car, probably. So it's quite close by. And uh, so John and um, Dale are opening their garden with me. So they'll be open on the same hours as as Tagurium is. So you could spend most of next weekend a whole day out looking at gardens, go off somewhere to have something to eat. Um, be a great weekend to go out. And Dale's lawn should be looking green after the rain. He'll be so pleased. He will. Uh, <laughs> and... And for those who are coming to the Plant Trust Christmas Party, you'll see both these gardens at the Plant Trust Christmas Party. Yeah, which Plus is, another one. <laughs> which Plus another one, yeah. which is December the 10th. So Plant Trust, we will be having fun then. Yeah, so there you go. So there's some of the things that are coming up over the next couple of weeks. That was the thing about losing those two big trees right in the middle, or not trees, branches right in the middle of my garden. I've just had Gardening Australia filming and I've just had the the... the fundraiser for the radio station. Mm. We had a wonderful garden party for the radio station on Sunday. Yeah, so why didn't the limbs come down before? They normally do it before <laughs> an event. I always find if something's going to go wrong, it's just before the event happens, we so had, you're lucky. We had such a good day and it would mm. have been ruined by mm. having, well, I suppose Ben would have been there. He probably would have had his chainsaw on board. Oh, yeah, look... But a couple it would of blokes have been, with chainsaws. It would have been a nightmare. <laughs> oh dear, I love it. Uh, so, have we got any other announcements? That's There's one other one that um, it's an unusual announcement. The Therapeutic Horticultural Australia are looking to get this occupation of therapeutic horticulture officially recognised at a government level. So, anyone who is working as a therapeutic horticulturalist could you contact the society immediately because they need, I think, 300 people by the 30th of November. So you need to vice president at tha.org.au. That's the Therapeutic Horticultural Australia. Vice president at tha.org.au. Because it's, as we all know, the garden can be an incredibly therapeutic place. Well, it keeps me sane. Keeps us all sane, especially <laughs> over the last few and years, And if you look at what Stephen's done in a hospital oh, of making a, yeah. an absolutely wonderful garden for long-term patients, I, there's all sorts of enormously important things about yeah. horticulture for a therapeutic reason. So that's vice president at tha.org.au. So let's hope, I'm sure some of our listeners will respond to that call. Well, let's hope so. Yes. Uh, it sounds like a very worthwhile project. Mm. Okay, so um, I bought a few bits and pieces in show and tell this morning, um, and I don't know where to start. So, Virginia, what do you think? Clematis stands, fuchsia procumbens, lupins or peonies? 
Lupins. Lupins, okay. <laughs> Can Good. I tell you why? All right, your I, turn. I put a loop. I hope Chloe's put it up on our Instagram it page. It is, it's there, it's I've there. seen it, yeah. Fabulous. I have a lupin, which I'm absolutely in love with. I got it from one of our listeners, and it's an, it's comes out late winter in the deepest, deepest real blue. And real blue, you get lots of purpley blue. Real blue in the garden's hard to get. And I've never actually been able to work out what it is. Mm. Salvia Meg thinks it's Texensis. Yeah. Texas blue bonnet, but I'm not sure it is. But I love it. And yeah. it's an annual, but the seeds just come up totally reliably every year. And sometimes you're not keen on an annual. You think, oh, no, oh, yeah, they can here, here we go. Got to, got to replant them again. Yeah, but it's here absolutely wonderful. Okay, okay, lupins, um, the, the misdemeanor with lupins is everybody wants to put them in rich clay soils. Lupins have nitrogen-fixing nodules in them, and that means they use to the poor soils. And, and anybody who's been to New Zealand on those pumice slopes, they will have noticed the big drifts of lupins, and there's a few on the west coast of Tasmania as well, in the poorer soils. So... The good old-fashioned Russell's hybrids are what we're talking about. Now, Russell's hybrids are distinguished from a lot of the others, um, and they come in perennials and annual forms, as Virginia just said, um, so far as they have a, 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 a bi-coloured flower. So they'll have the main part of the flower as one colour and then what's called the B part of the flower, which is the little bit that sticks out, which all pea flowers have, um, is, is generally a second colour. Lupins thrive with a bit of alkaline soil, so the good old-fashioned dolomite lime. They are herbaceous perennials, so that means they come up late winter, very early spring, and they flower late spring through the summer months. It is common to get a second flush in February, depending on just how hot summer is and if you cut them back. Lupins, like all perennials, they do need to be disturbed every few years because they do choke themselves out. And what, what I mean by that is the clumps get so big and so dense, they create humidity. Now, lupins don't particularly like humidity around them. So people will say, oh, my lupins have all rotted. And it's simply because you haven't dug and divided them. And, and, and it's, it's fairly, division of lupin is a fairly simple process. The eyes will show you, or the shoots will show you, and you can just take some secateurs or a spade in our case and knock them about. Lupins are great in sunshine. They're great at the back of a perennial border. Um, they will grow up to around one and a half meters tall and they'll get around about half a meter wide. Um, dormancy happens over winter. I find the Russells actually quite difficult to grow. They seem to dislike a north wind and they don't seem to like... I tried them in the drought and they didn't seem to like drought. They need it. They look a little bit of moisture to get them established. But generally, if you're, if you're mulching, they, they're not happy with mulch. Um, the, the poorer the soil, the better. Which brings me to... There are, there are you're all, saying don't mulch them. Don't mulch them, no. They don't like the humidity around the crowns. Um, and, and so, so there'll be some farmers out there go, yeah, but we use lupins out in our paddocks to, for, for nitrogen fixing. And, and, and part of the benefit of growing lupins in your soil um, as, as the micro rhizome in the soil show um, a bit of nitrogen natural nitrogen is better than a lot of synthetic fertilizers out there 
Sorry. Um, so um, there are cropping lupins, there are, there are green crop lupins, and there are farm fodder lupins as well. So um, you need to be careful that you're buying Russell's hybrids or Potophyllus seed when you're looking for seed, or, or lupin Russell hybrids as plants, which are for sale just about everywhere these days. But when I was driving through the Mexican desert with my daughter, we saw the most fabulous lupins, and I was ecstatic thinking I have those Russells no wonder I can't grow them when I'm in New Zealand and I see them and they're in they're always in riverbeds and big thick flowering spikes yes but but they're right they're on the edge of the rivers and pumice the pumice which is for those that don't know pumice because New Zealand is a volcanic country the pumice is like well it really looks like polystyrene for want of a better description or perlite um, it's it's very very light, um, and because that's what they thrive in. Ah, so it's the pumice, not it's, the water. It's not the water; it's the pumice. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't see any pumice when I was in Mexico, but I saw beautiful lupins. And I'm sure this one I've got is. I mean, it's not a Russell. How no. much water did you see in Mexico? None. Mm. <laughs> Dry soils. But then, like the Arid. Mexican pines, they're not the same as the English pines. I, mm-hmm. And and this one I have, it doesn't seem to, although I must admit I've only been growing it under El Nino. Mm. El Nino. El Nino. I'm, uh, maybe it will disappear when the drought comes back, but it's doing so well. I'll guarantee, though, that there will be dormant seed They'll, lying around. Yes. And so even if it doesn't really flourish when the ground dries up again, there'll be dormant seed there, and a few years from now, up it'll come again. You, you will have forgotten about it. And, then, mm. and lupin seed will... Generally, the pea seed family are not long livers, but lupin seed, because they dry out and they make a particularly hard crust. Um, I've, I've um, brought lupin seed out of storage and sown it 10, 15 years old seed, and it's still quite good, which is unusual for a pea mm. family seed. And can you find things like my lupin, which is not a, a Russell? Can you find other lupins around in Australia? Uh, yes, there are. I mean, and not. I don't mean agricultural lupins. Um, um, horticultural, ornamental lupins. Mm. Yes, there are. Apart from Russells, I, I think um, Merrill Johnson has a few. Um, but then generally um, there, there are problems getting lupins into the country from overseas because of lupin rust and wilt virus. Um, but I'm pretty sure Merrill has a few on her website, which is seedscapeseeds.com. Mm-hmm. Com. And it's often better to buy seed than it is to buy plants, really, when it comes to things like lupins. Uh, uh, so I would prefer to buy them as seed. Why? They Well, because you can they germinate them, get them into the ground and adjust it to your soil, whereas if you buy them as pre-grown plants, they'll be in a seed-raising mix of some sort. Their roots will probably have already hit the bottom of whatever they're growing in. Um, and so they just don't set... And they don't like to be disturbed all that much. So they're, they're better if they're planted either in situ or as very small plants to adjust. If, if you want the easy way out, buy your plants, but you won't get quick result from the seed. The seeds do need a winter chill to get them to germinate. So don't sow your seed in the middle of summer and expect them to come up next week. They mm. won't. Is this only applicable to Russells or is this applicable generally? Most lupins. And I think want that the one, cold. And I think, and I think yours will sit there until it gets that cold chill, that autumn chill, and mm. then up it comes. Yep. Okay, that's interesting. Now, we've had several messages, 
Marianne, I'd just love to thank Virginia for her garden party. It was a lovely day and there were so many friendly people there. Thank you. And Susie, who's one of our producers, sorry to hear about the branches coming down. Your garden was a pleasure to meander through. Now, a number of people said, can we do this again next year? And you could charge more for the radio station. <laughs> so maybe we will do it again next year. I'll do it a bit earlier and the lupins will be out. Mm, that, that would be, be fun. good. Good yes. idea. Yes. And then Emma, our, our other presenter, Emma, has said Trifford Park's annual carnivorous plant nursery is open today. So that is worth going to, nine till four. So she doesn't say where it is, but it's Trifford Park annual can uh, the uh, Trifford Park Carnivorous Plant Nursery. So if you uh, like, you should easily be able to Google that and find it. I'm sure. Absolutely. And, and they're such fun things to grow. I, I remember getting my first carnivorous plants back in the '80s, and it's like they they come in and out of vogue over the years, but they seem to be back nice and strong now because they they're quite happy on a sunny window ledge inside. And if you don't have a lot of room in modern apartments, a little a little picture plant on the windowsill or a Venus flytrap, they're the cutest little things. And very good. To introduce children to plants because they're quite kids, exciting. Kids are not necessarily interested in pretty things. They're interested in weird, strange, quirky, quirky. plants. So cactuses, insectivorous plants, you know, all that sort of stuff that's it gets their little brains functioning and they love that. And 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 you've got to tickle the little Venus flytrap at least once to oh, watch it close. Oh, poor little you? things. And I, I know it's only got a, each each trap's only got a limited life of opening and closing, but you have to do it, don't you? And to involve yeah. children that way. So both of you, do you sell lupins? I don't. I do. Mm. And 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 we we sell we just sell them as mixed plants. Um so the best and the best time to buy a lupin would be autumn, look, look, late autumn. Look, it, it, it depends, you know, particularly with, with the wet season. I mean, we, we sell lupins twelve months of the year, and we're continually doing batches. Although I think at the moment I'm sold out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but yeah, we, we'll have another batch around um, in the autumn. Um, so if somebody wants a lupin in autumn, you can go. White House Nursery. To White House Nursery in autumn. Mm-hmm. Online. Online. Online being an amazing thing. <laughs> being, it changed Both, the world shopping, hasn't it? It has. Both terrible and brilliant. So that's important. That's, so, that, so that's us talking about Ah, lupins. here we go. Oh, good on you, Emma. Thank you. The Trifford, annual, the Trifford Park Carnivorous Plant Nursery is 103 Dandenong Hastings Road in Somerville. There you go. So, so down that side of town. That's so. a trip for today. That's a good one today. Yeah. And that's another place for a Christmas present or two for children. Oh, yes. Mm. Yep. Ideal. Mm. As long as you don't buy them too early before Christmas and kill them first. <laughs> just, just keep them moist. They'll be happy. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, this is the 3CR Garden Show. And on here we have Stephen, Pete and Virginia. If you wish to text us, the number is 0488. 809-855 and if you wish to ring us 9419-0155 or you can send us an email 3cr.gardening at gmail.com Now at the, at the garden show party we had a number of people who said they don't ring in anymore because they don't like to interrupt our flow I think you should interrupt the flow. I do too. I, come That's on. what we're here for. We, we get out of bed at, at, at a great hour to come on in here. So so come on, guys, and dig we, deep and, and pluck we, up the courage. 
Well, it's not so much that. I think I think that the people ringing in offers a different perspective, mm. we, which sends us in a different direction that we haven't thought of. I think yeah. the listeners are a very important part of this show working so well. Yeah, I think so. Yes, but I'd very much like it if people did ring in. Seeking so, seeking and sharing. Yeah. Yep. 94190155. So, another plant, please. Another plant. Okay. Oh, clematis stands. Everybody thinks of when, when we talk clematis, um, of the climbing plants. So, so back in 1994, there, there's quite a famous seed house coming out of the UK called called um, Chilton Seeds, and they have this massive catalogue. It must be 150, 200 pages long. And I, I started looking one night, and I thought clematis, bushy clematis, shrubby clematis. And so anyway, got the seed in, germinated them, then then lost contact with them for a decade or two. And I've just recently sourced um, a clematis stands. Now, clematis stands, for those that don't know about it, looks a bit like um, an astilbe for want of a leaf description. And it grows about the same height as, as one of a, a, a well-grown astilbe. So it'll get to about um, a metre, 900 millimetres to a metre tall. It'll get to about 45, 450 millimetres wide. It's, um, it's country of origin, Clomata stands, is Japan. Um, so it's out of the the, the woody um, slopes of J- J- the Japan. Um, it, 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 so it does want a bit of shade. Um, it flowers in the late spring. Its individual flowers look like a, a single blue hyacinth, although from seed you can get mauve and you can get a pink variation. It'll flower in a great big umbel, which is, think of a feather duster, so that's an, what we call an umbel, and it, each flower stem or each umbel will probably have four to 500 individual little flowers on it. It has the most amazing perfume um, almost honey to describe its perfume. It is a deciduous one, so that means during autumn it'll turn yellow and its leaves will fall off it. But after the flowers, it gets the most amazing silk seed heads as well. Now, when it, so, so I'm describing it like it's going to have an awful lot of seeds. It will, but they don't all come up, so it doesn't become an environmental weed. Um, only ever about 1% of the seeds actually germinate, and they need the right conditions to germinate it. I'd be so excited if I saw a clematis as a weed. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't we? Well, I shouldn't say wouldn't we all, because somewhere some there would be a, a some weed place problem where it's a weed, with, yeah. as, a, as a weed, which which is the definition of weeds, isn't it? Any unwanted plant in an area becomes yes, it's one of the more general ones. Yes, as a weed. So that's little clematis stands. Now there are a bunch of the shrubby clematis. There's heracliofolia. There's stands. There's integrifolia. There's um, recta, there's recta purpurea, um, just to name a few. So they're well worth sourcing. I think Craig up at Gentiana might have a few up there as well. If you look Craig up. Um, and Craig, we have another message from somebody who was at the garden party who say we bought the blue lupin from Craig earlier this year. So, yes, he also has my yeah. lupin. 
my Lupin. Yeah. And he also very and, possessive uh, you are. And, and she's, <laughs> she's also wearing royal blue this morning, might we add? <laughs> and and Peter also says uh, and tell Stephen I've been watching him and Matthew on YouTube and I'm really enjoying it. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you are, and I hope everybody else does as well because we put an awful lot of time and effort into that damn thing. So the more the more the merrier that watch it. And I have to say, people should subscribe and watch the videos through because that helps us. Right. If they and can. They need the money. No, no, we don't. Tell us it's... Oh, uh, if you want to, go on to YouTube and type in The Haughty-Culturalists. Uh, so The Haughty-Culturalists. It'll pop up. Uh, it'll give you the opportunity to press the subscribe button. Subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. It just means that you're a subscriber. And if you press the alert button, it should tell you each week when our next video comes up. And, of course, the amount of watched hours we get uh, makes a difference to our algorithms and the whole thing sort of ties together so it monetarizes. For so us. how many different um, videos would there be there, Steve? There's well at. over 200 of them now. Wow, wow. So it's a huge In- back catalogue. Including one shot at my place yes. on the most disgusting day. It was an awful day, wasn't it? <laughs> Windy and disgusting, but it did point out the actual reason for the video was that you can garden where you've got climates and can throw those sorts of things at you. So. Absolutely. And we've got to push my little begonia ones. No, you don't we, have to push we, the begonia one. It's our biggest watched video. It's had over 89,000 views. Wow. And, and from that video, I must say, we've got a lady from California coming over to look at our begonia display and she's taking tubers back with her. So that's a good one. She's mm. allowed to. She's allowed to, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that is our highest rating video. Uh, that one we did with Peter. Pete, uh, who does begonias. Yes, exactly. So there you And go. comes into the 3CR radio show. He's a busy boy these days. <laughs> and we have one other one. Kim says, great garden party. Could you please give the recipe for the fruitcake? It's one of the best we've ever had. Well, Ooh. that fruitcake was made by another listener called Lorraine. So I will ask her if we can have the recipe and we'll put it up on either Instagram or on Facebook. Thank you, Kim, and I'm sure Lorraine will be thrilled. <laughs> it's always lovely to to get compliments about one's cooking, cooking. isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Back to clematis. I think that clematis, people think they're hard to grow. I I think they can be a little bit hard to get through. the Any plant can be hard to get through the first six months. It, look, they are definitely soil sensitive and they are definitely water sensitive so clematis do thrive once again with a bit of dolomite lime they so so if we're talking climbing clematis clematis wilt is a problem out there which a lot of people will have problems with now if you stake firmly your climbing clematis and stop any possibility of the wind just fracturing that bark um, it, it's really a matter of protecting the bark to keep the the wilt spores out and, and wilt sp- spores are everywhere there's nothing you can really do to protect from spores as COVID has shown there's it's, it's just a fact of life but if your climbing clematis are particularly well anchored at that soil level generally wilt doesn't show up too often and and i think there's a whole bunch of new hybrid climbing ones out there that are fairly um, immune to wilt anyway but anyway if if your climbing clematis does get wilt just cut them back to ground level and they will fairly quickly reshoot so that's one of the problems with the climbers the little herbaceous ones or the bushy ones don't get wilt at all i find that i don't get wilt on mine but of course I'm so concerned to give them a cool root run 
that they're very rarely exposed. I plant mm. them somewhere where they've got bushes around them. Roots in the shade. Heads so their roots are in the shade. And their heads worked away. And up I into have the sun. got I have got at the moment you just walk around my garden, if you put your head up, you look at a clematis. I've yep. I've got all these trees, I've got all these flashes of dark purple in them. Because yes. I've just got clematis everywhere. And they do and I have to say my soil's quite acidic. And they've coped very well with that, but mm. I do think it's the cool root run. Cool root run, and mm. give, them, give, them a, give them some lime. I'll Good old-fashioned dolomite. Mm. Come on, <laughs> a bit of magnesium won't hurt them as well. Oh dear. All right. Um, what are we going to do next? Um, are we going to talk about my plants, or are we going to talk about Zelda de Prano? If you wish to talk about Zelda de Prano, Stephen, you may. All right. Well, I'd like to just mention this in passing, if anybody's interested. As you well know, the Victorian government uh, last year made a big push to get more women represented in sculpture. Apparently, we've got more horses and dogs in sculpture than we've got women. And uh, a local Mount Macedon sculptor uh, did a statue of um, Zelda, which is outside the Trades Hall. And she was a... Uh, a woman who fought for equal rights, equal pay, all those sorts of things for women. And so a very important woman in her time. And she's now standing outside the trades hall in bronze. Um, Mount Macedon is trying to do a similar thing. We've got uh, a very famous woman who lived at Mount Macedon called Alice Rowan. And some of you may know about her. She was she died in 1922, so this last year was the anniversary of her death, so there's a lot of uh, connections going on. And we're trying to get a sculptor made by the same sculptor who did the Zelda statue. She lives at Mount Macedon, or in the Bringo Valley, but more or less Mount Macedon, uh, because Alice Rowan was really important in her time. She, in the 1890s, she was travelling up into the highlands of New Guinea painting birds of paradise and flowers and things. She went to Western Australia. She went to far north Queensland. Uh, she went to America. She illustrated three books on American wildflowers for a, a botanist over there. Uh, I mean, she was world famous in her time. She won a gold medal at the 1890s um, Great Exhibition at the Exhibition Buildings in Melbourne, which sent all the male um, uh, artists into a frenzy of hate and, and and despicable acts. And they said it was outrageous that a woman and, and one that painted flowers was given major prizes and they didn't get them. So Glover and McCubbin and all those people were really annoyed about the whole thing. Um, and in fact, that original painting belongs to the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, and for up until about three or four decades ago, it wasn't even catalogued. It was just in a cupboard. And it's now catalogued and it's now, you know, known about. Um, so Alice Rowan was a daughter of Mount Macedon. Her father owned a big property up there. She grew up up there. She came back to Mount Macedon right through her life. She's buried in the Macedon Cemetery. And there's nothing to commemorate her on Mount Macedon at all. So we've got together and uh, the sculptor and I and the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society, we've started a subcommittee. We're going to raise funds to build a, uh, or to have a statue commissioned uh, of Alice Rowan. We've got the image of her sitting by an easel with a little terrier dog at her feet with her Victorian great big hat on and her and her Victorian gown and the whole thing. Um, and uh, we also want to um, put money into a regular botanic art prize. We're working towards getting one of the local streets named 
change to Alice Rowan Drive. And so we're making a big push to point out just how important Alice Rowan was, not just as a Mount Macedon resident, but as an Australian and, in fact, a world-renowned painter. Um, And anybody who's seen her biographies, there's at least two out there that were written about her, she had the most amazing life. She was just the most incredible woman. Tiny, petite little thing. Uh, And here she is up in the highlands of New Guinea with porters carrying her case up to the top of a mountain so she can paint a bird of paradise. And steep mountains they oh, are. Oh, goodness me. How she ever did what she did is beyond me. Uh, she should have died about 20 times. So the, there is, there's there's been a text come in saying Ellis Rowan's paintings are absolutely superb. Oh, stunning work. She painted over 3,000 paintings. And, and if somebody wants to um, donate to this project of yours, oh, how do well, they do that? The best thing to do is just to contact me and I can I get their email. I can send them all the details. I can give them a, a, a rough history of Alice Rowan. I can show them a picture of the one we're going to use for the sculpture. And I can also show them how they can use it as a tax deductible um, donation. Uh, we've got tax deductibility on this particular project. So you can put it through um, Australian Cultural Foundation. Then they pay us and they give you a tax deductible invoice. So if you wanted to give money towards the sculpture you could do that so the best thing is probably to ring me at the nursery give me your email address and then I'll just send all the details off to you so that you can get engaged with it. And your nursery phone number? Uh, Is is 5426307575 Botanic Art Prize and other things that we want to sort of add to this whole project. Um, So we're going to need quite a lot of help to get there, but we're determined to do it. And I think it'll be a fantastic tourist attraction for Mount Macedon, apart from anything else. Can't imagine Mount Macedon needs any more. Well, it needs some other things, you know. So what, what's the plan of where is the statue going? Oh, the statue the will be going uh, into the car park area right, right up at the back of the car park at the uh, Mount Macedon Golf Club and Horticultural Hall. We've got a nice little sort of stand of eucalypts with a, a big pencil oak growing in the middle of it. And we're going to nestle her in there. It'll be landscaped around. It's open public space. It's Victorian government owned, so it's open all the time. So you could go in and have a look at it once we get it there. Um, and, of course, because it's at the Horticultural Hall... Her statue is going to be right next to where the art shows will be going on. Um, I mean, and in fact, it's only a couple of hundred metres from the lower boundary of what used to be her father's property as well. So it's almost putting her home again. So there's a lot of things that are tied together quite nicely with this whole project. So, yeah, so if anybody can help me, just ring me at the nursery. I'd love to talk to anybody who's uh, able to give us some assistance. Um, um, Give me the phone number again, please. It's 54263075. And this is a general problem. There is um, an exhibition at the moment on at Heidi of uh, Lee Miller. She's a surrealist photographer and... Mm. Same story, just for absolutely fabulous work mm. and forgotten. Yeah, and yeah. all her her stuff wasn't refound until after she died. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. there are just some wonderful photographs mm. in this exhibition at Heidi. Yeah. So I recommend you go there. Although getting to Heidi by car at the moment is a touch difficult. Yes, could be. <laughs> uh, I have to say, Alice Rowan was very good as a self promoter in her lifetime. So she was very well known during her life. But because she was a woman and because she painted flowers, uh, 
serious artists tended to be quite dismissive of her. Um, and so after she passed away and most of her or a large part of her collection ended up in the National Gallery in Canberra, um, she sort of disappeared into obscurity after her death. And, and her paintings weren't hung, I presume. And a lot of them weren't hung. I mean, they're, they're, they're available for sale regularly. You see Alice Rowan's pop up in different catalogues of uh, antique auctions and things every so often. Um, now, we've had another question. How much money are you trying to raise? Well, we've got to raise around about $250,000. So, so it's going to take a bit of time. It will take a bit of time and effort, uh, but I think it'll be a worthwhile project uh at the end of the day. So, yes, if anybody's got a spare 250 grand going that they'd like a tax deduction on, I'd love to hear from them. It'd make my life very easy. <laughs> I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah, no, I doubt that too, but there you go. And we've had another another um, request. The blueberry slice and the apple spice cake were absolutely <laughs> delicious. Uh, Can we have those recipes as well? <laughs> Also, Craig's eclairs were amazing and Craig Craig made the blueberry slice and the apple spice cake was made by Lorraine who (laughs) made the fruitcake. Oh, goodness me. So they're obviously our two best cooks. Well... Look, sounds to me like we could produce a cookbook. <laughs> that might be the next thing to do. Oh, dear, the 3CR uh, Christmas party cookbook or something or another. Uh. Well, it's, it is wonderful that the, that the party has had – I mean, it was a very good mm. fundraiser for the station, which is important, and we did have really good fun. I think we might do it next year, and mm. obviously Craig and Lorraine are going to have to cook. Oh, <laughs> They've, do- they've opened up a can of worms and it's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to find the president, Clematis, in Melbourne. Oh, God, that's an old uh, cold, that's, though. That's an old one. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if any of those old varieties. There was Nellie Moser that a president. Bell uh, of Woking, I've got Nellie there was, Moser. There's, there was a bunch and of them. All of those I, were the Jackman Eye hybrids that were very Jack- prone to getting wilt. Yes. Uh, if I were planting Clematis now, actually, I'd go more for Viticellas. Uh, their flowers are slightly smaller, but they don't tend to get the wilt either, and they flower for a long time. But I've got quite a few of the biggies, and they don't. I don't. They don't get wilt. I don't mm. think you have to get wilt if you actually plant them. So they're they're. Base is very well, well one thing protected. Peter didn't mention, though, he talked about damage to the stems, but even a slug or snail can do that damage too. So, um, you know, if they eat the bark off the base of the stem, um, that can allow wilt in. So it's not always just physical damage by the wind blowing it or whatever. Um, you've got to watch out for those sorts of things. But Viticella clematis, I mean, their flowers are fractionally smaller, but they flower for months. Mm. You know, your, your jackman eyes tend to have spurts and then they stop and if you cut them back they'll spurt again uh but the viticella's going for ages i've got one called polish spirit in the garden at the moment which is just stunning it's growing up a uh, tripod uh and flopping across a uh, trimmed variegated box and so you've got the soft color of the box with these big purple flowers all over the top of it at the moment it's looking stunning and they're really easy the viticellas i just cut them down to nearly ground level every winter and away they go again they're retailed regularly you'll just have to google search clematis yeah. um they, they crop up alameda still uh, uh, but they're they're wholesale oh of course alameda they are. are wholesale so yeah. so i mean um, uh, once again craig probably has some up there yeah he may um, well have some I've, um, I've got Polish spirit, 
which means I bought that somewhere. Cloud Hill could around have some me. Up there. Yeah, yeah. Polish spirits are great clematis, actually. Mm. Uh, to me, it would be a good alternative to the president because it's got a nice dark flower, but it flowers for longer, and it gets more flowers, even though the flowers are slightly smaller. So the amount of colour you get is every bit as good. So yes, if you can get Polish spirit, I definitely recommend it. It's mm. a great clematis. But there's, there's a bunch of them. There's oh, a bunch of them great out ones. there. And there is a very, very good clematis wholesaler in who lives just near me, and I will get Craig to see if he has Polish spirit and some of these other ones. because yeah. so, Craig could then be yeah, selling them. Yeah, he could, he could be there. selling them. Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, by the way, did anybody watch the video we did on his hostas two weeks ago? Not yet. Two yeah. weeks. That's much too soon. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to be there at Friday morning, first thing when it goes up, watching madly. Uh, yeah, we did one on um, Craig's hostas, and I think the video came up really well. And we've had quite a lot of views on it, so people seem to be enjoying it because his hosta collection is Absolutely fabulous. extraordinary. Yeah, I think he said he's got well over 50 different hostas in the collection that he's got for sale. Did you talk to him about registering that collection for No, I haven't yet. I, I actually want him to register his begonia collection. Mm. And I've, I've mentioned it to him because he's got some wonderful cane-type begonias. Um, so he could do both. <laughs> In his spare time. That'll keep him, keep yeah, him off the streets. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I guess he could also hold a number of other collections, actually, thinking it through. He's got a lot of epimediums. <laughs> Our producer has just put through a message. I watched your hosta video. It was top tier. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Go, Jacob. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. Yeah, so there you go. So, All right. What next? Yes, Pete, your begonias. My begonias. Yeah. Well, I, I, look, we, we're going ahead with the begonia show again this autumn, mm -hmm. um, and um, Greg Boulderstow and I have done quite a bit of work with the conservatory up at Forest Glade, and they were good enough to help me last year, um, and we're hoping to get onto the Mount Macedon Autumn Festival because I'm I'm thinking this year. Um, to, to run our show and the conservatory up at Forest Glade at the same time because Forest Glade is well and truly involved with the Autumn Fest Leaves Festival. Mm. So we're going to be going on again. This will be our fourth year. Um, I think we, we, we our crowd held fairly firm last year at around the 4,500 people, which, which keeps us busy. But to put that into context, it's, it's over an eight-week period. So um, there's never big crowds. So there's always lots of um, plants to look at. But we're, we're, uh, the begonias and the fuchsias are well on track to looking great from February along. Um, I'm putting... The original collection I had up at Forest Glade this year, and oh, from a, just we'll get over Christmas and then we'll start filling the conservatory up there. I think Greg said I need about 140 plants, so we've got them in tens and 12 inch pots, so they're going to be about a meter high, same as at home. Outrageous, um, yeah, it gets a bit over the top, especially <laughs> when the stakes start to break and we've got to re clamber over <laughs> and restake and tie them. Um, but um, so, so last year I kept another 500 that I just couldn't part with, um, so my collection's burnt at the seam and we're going to rehash the, the whole display area with the 500 new ones so anybody that has come along and said no I don't want to have another look because I saw that last year it's going to be a whole bunch of different ones this year um the fuchsias look we're, we're running the fuchsias at the same time 
I, I love fuchsias, as as Stephen can can vouch, <laughs> um, and, and and they're just such great little bedfellows because they both want the shade. They 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 both summer flowering. Although in the warmer climates, you can push your fuchsias almost twelve months of the year. Um, what else do you want to know? I've got. Um, procumbens in flower at the moment. Well, I bought part of my little curios. I bought into procumbens. I, I went through before I disappeared last night, and for the first, look, look how I, I don't know if you guys can see, but the older flowers on procumbens are actually fading to to almost a yellow. Mm. We, yeah. we didn't pick that up when we made the program, did we? Now no. let's actually um, describe procumbens to people. Because so, so, yeah, so, it's not so, like a normal so, fuchsia. So. so um, I've talked about fuchsia procumbens on this program. Sorry, fuchsias on this program before, but this morning I thought I'd bring procumbens in. So fuchsia procumbens is a New Zealand native. There are going to be some Australian Puritans out there that are, sh are about to shoot me down in flames because Australia wants to claim it as its own. It isn't. It's a New Zealand um, species. It's an evergreen ground cover fuchsia, so or a climber, a semi rambler. If it's got some support, it'll climb. Otherwise, it's 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 a cascading or a prostrate grower. Um, it's it's little tiny leaves. It almost looks like um, individual maiden hair foliage, doesn't it? Um, it's it's it'll take more sun than 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 most fuchsias. It'll take the frost more than most fuchsias. Um, it, it it does. It won't take the dry. It it needs no. It does need mulch, um, or uh, and out, and out in your area, it probably would be great under shrubberies. It would probably take heavy shade out through there because you do get baked out there during summer. Um, it 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 has the most amazing fruit, um, which after its flowers, it's it's. Um, how do I describe it? It, it gets around about a centimetre in diameter and around about half a centimetre in height. And Steve, if, if you watch Stephen's um, fuchsia program, it, Matthew, Stephen and I are eating one. And to describe its flavour, it's really just sweet nothingness. There's a, I, I, there's a whole bunch of those fruits from star apples through to jackfruits. And people say describe that flavour. And I would just describe it as it's sweet lolly water. It doesn't have a, a nutty flavour or a, 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 a candy flavour or, or a chocolate flavour. It's just sweet nothingness. Um, I think the Maori culture had developed... Um, a, a separate word for the fuchsia yeah, fruit. Yeah, it's the only plant in New Zealand that has a name for the tree in the, in their local uh, dialect. dialect, but also a separate name for the fruit. So it was obviously quite an important food plant for them because they had a separate name for the fruit. It, it had, they had developed in their culture. Mm. So but far there is as. a tree fuchsia. Oh, yes, ex-quartata, which grows oh. up into a big tree and has edible fruit. Because yeah. I think one of the things that's important to say about procumbens is that the flower is smaller than my fingernail, little mm, fingernail. Tiny. It is really very small. Would that would it be ten millimeters? Um, around around about. And it's the only fuchsia that stands up, faces faces up upright. As it so, has to, because it lays flat on the so, ground. So as as a ground cover, it, all the little flowers come out, and you don't notice it flowering. Uh, we we took the stock plant up to the Yarra Valley Plant Fair, and I just took it as a curio thing and had it down over the over the counter, and and it, it wasn't flowering when I took it up there, and over the three or four days with 
the heat up there, the little flowers had opened and it had this most the the, the very end of the flower. But when you the most beautiful blue tinge to it. It's when a, you think about fuchsias, you think about these big gaudy hybrid huge, blousy, very things. blousy, or, or, or the species or, or the big tree ones. It's even they're also. Yeah. Big and blousy yep. in their own, in their own way, way yeah. not hybridised. But um, this, but this is tiny, absolutely this, tiny, it's, it's and yet it's tiny, it's one honey. of my favourite plants in it's my garden. It's a great little plant. It's the only fuchsia with an upward flower, and it's the only fuchsia that actually has yellow in the flower. So yes. it's it's got a few characteristics about it that are completely different to the rest. And actually, it's really interesting because New Zealand only has two fuchsias. And one of them is the world's smallest fuchsia, and the other is the world's biggest fuchsia, which is really weird. And what are the flowers like on the tree? Uh, they often come out off the sides of the trunks, wow. a bit like a, a, a Judas tree can, and they're pink. They're small, but they're pink, and they come in little clusters. Uh, and they'll grow right up the stems, so you'll have them right up to the tips, but you'll see them actually on the old trunks. And the trunks actually have beautiful papery bark on them, oh, like a malaluca. Yep, yep. So you've got this lovely papery bark. Apparently the early settlers in New Zealand used to use the bark as a rather hot-burning tobacco alternative. So they used to smoke fuchsia bark. Uh, that's what you call desperation. <laughs> Look, as, as children growing up on a farm, we used to smoke stringy bark. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have tried pine needles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so question, is the tree fuchsia from New Zealand in Australia? Oh, yeah. Mm. I grow it. Oh, do you grow it? I yeah, must, oh, yeah I must I've have got a plants look. of it for sale. Uh, I found two big old plants of it growing in Alton, one of the big gardens mm. up on Mount Macedon, because it's got a really good New Zealand native collection up there that G.R. Nicholas put in in the 1940s. I must see if it's in the Botanic Garden New Zealand collection. You should actually, that's a good point because I don't remember seeing it there mm. but certainly I've got plants in 20 centimetre pots up around about uh, half a metre tall. It grows very easily so, from cuttings. So next question why do some people claim that Procumbens is an Australian plant? Rivalry. But that it is. Well, they they tried to call Waratahs kiwi roses. Did they? <laughs> yes, they were going to sell them as a cut flower and call them kiwi roses. <laughs> so there's that across the ditch that, competition going uh, on all the time. It's it's ours. And yeah. it's ours. It's yes. sort of Pavlova thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I do think it's wonderful procumbens, but if you're expecting something very flashy in in a fuchsia sort of way, it's not flashy no, at it's, all. It's, it's not flashy. No, no. Great it's, basket subject but, though. And, and and a great and a great weed suppressant has a ground cover and it will take more sun. It's it's a it's a lovely little thing. I Again, found it very difficult to grow during the drought, but it's been growing as an absolute dream for me for the last five years. Beautiful. Mm. Chloe has texted in. Chloe, uh, mm. who is one of our presenters. Stephen, you're on to something. We need to do a gardening show cookbook full of recipes. <laughs> oh, no. What did I say? <laughs> Uh, Full of recipes passed down through the generations and recipes that use up large amounts of produce. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I'm not taking that on as a project. I've got an Alice Rowan statue to deal with, so I don't need a, a cookbook as well. And we have had another... Uh, nobody will ring in, but they're sending yeah, in the text at a great rate. Priscilla says, hi, Virginia. I bought a salvia at a plant market over the weekend and I've forgotten how large it grows. It's called Salvia splendens van Hootii. How big will it get? I think it'll get to your hip level. Yeah, metre-ish. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, something and like it's, that. And it's like all salvias, it's much better for being pruned. So mm. it's not small, but it's not large at yeah, all. Yeah. I think if you look to it being to your hips, maybe your waist, mm. and then prune it to the size you want from mm. there. And be, be aware that Van Hootie is not particularly cold uh, cold tolerant. And they do get knocked around with the wind. Yeah. Yes, it's very brittle and yes. soft yep. and sappy. Yep. So you need to plant it carefully. Mm. But it's very showy. <laughs> yes. It is showy. It's, it's yeah, beautiful. it is. It's a wonderful colour. Yeah. But I think quite a few of those, if you let them go, they get woody. Oh, yeah. It's Quickly. Quickly. Yes, absolutely. And that's... Definitely not a good look. No. We don't want them we don't want them woody. But often they'll come back if you cut them down. Oh um, yeah. Because yeah. I've done that to a couple of my lavenders recently and they've come back, but mm. the wait for them to come back is rather unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can never be dead sure. That's the the trouble because sometimes they'll respond quite well, sometimes they just die. Mm. So you've got to accept that possibility. But, but they do they do have a, a limited life anyway. Mm. I mean, yes. they, they don't Five go years. On. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And also I think in my experience the French lavenders will cut and come back in a way that say some of the English ones just won't. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yep. But, and I, I don't grow the Italian because it's weedy around me. Yes, it can be quite a problem actually. Mm. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so there you go. But I love a lavender. I love a salvia. I must count how many salvias I've got. It must be a ridiculous number. Yeah, with that probably say, why did I plant all those salvias? With that spare time, Never. Virginia, you could probably yeah. start the cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, well, that's why I haven't counted my salvias <laughs> all that spare time. <laughs> ah, now we have a message from Rosie in Mitcham. Procumbens equals prostate. So is this the fuchsia Virginia has near her garage shed? It's around my pond and it's a ripper of a plant. And, yes, it's in that big, big, um, it's an old apple apple thing. Barrel. But, um, Spoil the box, the, the, big, the apple box. The great big yes. apple box, yes, near my garage shed. And it's completely filled it and it's covered all the sides. So it just looks fabulous. It is exactly that one, Rosie. Actually, I was saying to Peter on the way down and on um, social media in the last couple of days, a picture popped up of somebody who's in New Zealand and there's a variegated one. Oh, wow. I didn't realise there was and they've got a picture of variegated procumbens. So I doubt it's here, uh, but it'd be nice to have if it was. It'd, it'd, be, it'd be a lovely little thing to have, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would. So, yes, yeah, so there's, there's something to look out for. <laughs> we, we won't hold our breath that no. one turning up quickly anytime no, soon. Unless it variegates here. That's what I always hope is if I see a variegated form somewhere else, yes. you just hope it's it might just spontaneously erupt as they can. Out there, yeah. Um, yeah. And now then somebody with, with somebody nameless who says, I love Chloe's idea. I volunteered to be the taste tester before publication. Oh. <laughs> No wonder they didn't put their name up. <laughs> Goodness me. And now I have another one. Hi, Virginia. I've been given a tayberry. Do I have to worry about it becoming weedy? How should I plant it and take care of it? A lot of those berries, I have a bit to do with berries. I'm in the middle of putting a, a, an orchard in for our grandchildren because I've got this thing that I want to have them eat berries until they poop berries and then hand them back to their parents. That's, that's the, the sadistic <laughs> side of me. An evil person. Now, now, all of the berries, be they the thornless blackberries, the tayberries, the youngberries, the silverberries, the whole lot of them 
will tend to sucker. And you have to remember that a tay berry is a cross between a raspberry and raspberries definitely sucker. Mm. Um, to, to put that into perspective for you, I've got a tay berry that I've had in a pot for maybe 10 years and it's been fairly neglected and it's still, and I mean neglected, it's still puts up suckers around the outside of the pot. Now, does I have it a, give fruit? Yes, it does. Um, it, it's, the fruit um, really is more along the raspberry flavour. What's it crossed with, raspberry and...? I, uh, no, I've never gone into it that far. Um, it, I, it's a, raspberry was the main thing that popped up to me, but it'll be one of those more insignificant berries, I have a feeling. Right. Um, but yes, definitely and definitely you can move the suckers. Um, my partner just round up the whole bunch of um, um, Silvanbury suckers coming up through our driveway. Um, don't, don't be alarmed <laughs> um, with it becoming an invasive thing so far as escaping into the bushland or riverbanks. Um, 99.9999% of that seed that if, if birds eat them are sterile. You get the old, they're not like the old fashioned blackberry, um, which nearly all of the seed germinates after a quick stratification. Um, a lot of the hybrids, although you're eating the seeds, most of them are sterile. Um, it's just that little root suckering that will cause you a little bit of. Uh, Background on Tayberry. Yep. Google's fantastic. Uh, it was patented in 1979. Well, that's long a cross, ago. Yes, as a cross between a blackberry and a red raspberry, oh, and named that. after the River Tay in Scotland. And the fruit is uh, is sweeter and much larger than either of its parents. So I'm, that's what they say. I'm I'm sorry. I prefer the raspberries. I've yeah, had, I like got raspberries them, I've got myself. Them both there. But mm. yeah, so blackberry mm. raspberry cross mm. and was developed in Scotland. So with something like that, it would seem it's wise not to plant it near your fence line. Oh, yeah. no, it'll go straight you're, under the fence it'll, into it'll, your neighbours. It'll go through to your neighbours, especially if, if you don't like your neighbour, though. If, if they're more generous with watering than you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, because all the berries do okay in the dry. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, that, that root suckering with all of the berries is... is a, oh, sorry, with all of that type of berries, not... Not my others. my raspberries so. sucker, but they don't bother me. You put them in a patch, and you know you're going to have the raspberry patch. Mm. You don't expect them to stick to a row. You don't you don't plant raspberries out for a row. You just put them in as a patch. And of course, being in a patch, that helps with your cross pollination because mm. quite often you'll 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 notice your raspberries if you've only got one plant or two plants and they're apart. The fruits will tend to have little divots in them or little pimples in them where. The pollen hasn't landed on that particular ovary to fertilise that particular little seed pulp, for, for want of a better word. Hmm. However, the horseradish, I wish I'd never planted. I planted it in a very, very big, waist-high pot, and I cannot get rid of it. Okay, horseradish is in the dock family. It's a dock. That's mm. what it does. It grows from root cuttings like a, a whole bunch of plants. It forms eyes. You'll say, I've dug it all out. It's like a canthus mollus. You will not get rid of it. Yeah. Roundup will not get rid of it. By the way, horseradish is one of the only things I've ever seen reduce grown men to tears. 
doing fresh horseradish <laughs> in an enclosed uh, space? Has yeah, I made ever my own horseradish sauce once. once. <laughs> <laughs> Never again. But, of course, I grated it by hand. Of course, I didn't have a processor. Yeah, hand. It has to be started by hand. The second grating is through the processor, but the first grating is hand grating. Ugh. Hot fire. That's yeah. how we describe horseradish. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, I love the flavour, mm. but I hate the plant. It's actually a very profitable plant to grow. It's one of the more lucrative ones, yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah, because you can turn it into wasabi, apparently. Yeah, most wasabi. Oh, yeah, most wasabi is horseradish. Is dyed horseradish. Yeah, we probably none of us have probably eaten proper wasabi. There, are, there are plants freely available now oh, yeah. of wasabi, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. But it's not as easy to grow. It's a, a cool root, cool yeah, it's moist root. Cool run. and moist, moist the whole time, With and slugs and snails love it. it. Oh, they'll just eat your wasabi to the ground. So, Virginia, it's just cultivation, 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 cultivation. That's the only way you're going to get rid of your horseradish problem. But there'll be people out there that wish they had your problem. Really? Yeah. It doesn't do it to everybody? No, no, no. I I actually had the variegated one in the garden at home and it it faded out. It faded out, Oh, but variegated often does that. Yeah. Because they're weaker, yeah. yeah. But I I know people that struggle to grow horseradish. Really? Yes. I find yeah, that they exist, what and they're mean? good gardeners, Virginia. <laughs> what do you mean cultivation? Cultivation. The last S- thing. So I far to... as physical, dig, 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 dig. dig. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Just got to keep on top of it. The more you mulch it, the more the crown will actually grow up. Um, so, so, uh, and and it's not that's uh, what if if you've dug it off down deep, it's not actually the useful stuff that gets up to the surface. It's from the down deep, down deeper mm. is the useful stuff. It's just the stem trying to get up to get more light. Yeah. Yes, I think I have a very, very big problem with the horseradish. Unfortunately, it's a nice problem to have for a lot of people. Mm, not me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chloe thinks that the nameless taste tester was probably AB. <laughs> Oh, that's dobbing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephen doesn't like dwarf hostas. I love some of the names they have. Blue mm. Mouse Ears was a favourite of mine. Actually, that's one of the few dwarf ones I actually quite liked at, at Craig's. I cannot quite see the point in having a miniature version of something that has big, beautiful leaves because they're going to have very small, not-so-beautiful leaves. And uh, not-so-beautiful flowers. No, and so Blue Mouse Ears I could live with because it had sort of like scalloped leaves like little mouse ears and it was cute and if you had a big drift of it it'd look lovely but some of the dwarf ones are so tiny they don't even look like hostas anymore Mm. and there's plenty of other small leaf plants I could be putting in if I'm going to grow hostas I want something with a bit of guts and and those perfume ones the perfume ones are just fantastic yeah Yeah, well I came home with at least (laughs) two different ones from Craig's collection Matthew left with at least two that he bought Uh, I bought one called Kiwi that was a gold leafed one which was just beautiful and big leaves and fabulous looking plant and And what do you do about the slugs and the snails I just grow them in pots Grow them up in pots. You can keep them up above the slugs and snails quite easily. Uh, Craig's are all on a bench, all up above. And his benches are beautiful. Yeah, and he doesn't have them in the ground because mm. we went around looking for some in the ground. And I'll confess something here. We took one of the pot plants, hid it behind an epimedium and talked about them in the ground as if it was in the ground and it wasn't. It was in a pot because we decided we'll go out and talk about them in the ground and Craig didn't have any out in the ground. They're all in his pots. Mm. And, uh, and they make great pot plants. Well, this is the problem with Cleanthus, which is another New Zealand plant I love to grow, but it every snail oh. in the whole of Seville comes to my place. Um, yeah. Look, they, 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 there's that new pink one around, and the snails don't seem to have touched that at home. They've, they decimate the red one, and they don't seem to touch the white one. 
I haven't. I haven't got. Have you got the white one? Yeah, mm. yeah. I'll give you some seed, Virginia. Yes, yeah. please. Yeah, it's lovely. I love but, Cleanthus. But but the white one. So so the red one, you know, will only get to that meter and a half. The white one will grow two to three meters. No worries. Um, Virginia's but, got room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've got to go over and have a look. Virginia keeps saying, Peter, you must come. You must. Yeah, come. of course you should. It um, is. It is yeah. special, my I, garden. I, a, a friend of mine came to your fundraiser, and she was. At dinner last night, she was bestowing how wonderful it was. Um, so I will, I'm in Sylvan regularly. I will get across there. Well, the other thing about my garden is that I have got the best view. So even mm. if I'm not gardening terribly well at the time, the view just rescues me because I have such a, a magnificent oh, view. Oh, it's a gorgeous spot. It really so is. that really, it does help. I don't like to say this in public, you know. I'm not a good gardener. I just have a beautiful view. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you could look at it that way. <clears throat> but th look, the snails are a bit of a problem with, with hostas. Host mm. All people that grow hostas mm. um, expect that the slugs and snails are the problem and they prepare for it. Because yep. um, I don't, I will not use slug and snail killer of the ordinary variety i've yeah the seen problem is um <laughs> with snail baits and i think we discussed this on the video if you use the sort of basal blue pellets which are just absolutely dynamite they kill snails as soon as they touch them but they're highly poisonous to everything else if you use including the, the birds therefore yeah and, and including the birds uh so they are a really dangerous thing to use if you use the iron-based snail killers, they work, but they work slowly. So what happens is until you get on top of the critical mass of slugs and snails there, they'll still be eating through your hostas whilst they're dying. So they, it doesn't work as fast, so you still get lots of damage. I have seen dogs rushed into vet hospital for eating snail bait that on the packet says it's safe for dogs. Yeah, I'm, I'm still nervous about even using those. So I've seen it. I've <coughs> seen it go wrong. One one of our little border collies had the brains to come to us and smile, and my partner noticed the blue ring on stuck on her teeth. That was an expensive lesson with um, that blue. No, oh, the blue snail bait yeah. is an absolute. And killer. you no longer use it. I look. I I as Stephen will vouch for me here. I have a few chickens running around our farm, and I don't use anything. We we have a huge fog frog population um I, I think my flock of chickens numbers about 70 i don't know i got back from larkman's from from the yarra valley plant fair and my partner looked after the chickens dutifully for me but he didn't see a mother chook and another 10 chickens and i have swore there's a no chicken policy around our place this year i think i think another chicken is due to hatch in the packing shed about wednesday this week this is my no chicken policy working okay <laughs> i think you need to um revise how you manage this yeah. Bloody Has Stephen gave fault. me his I gave him roosters. A <laughs> so we have red and son of red. It's like, well, I the, suggest that son of red becomes pot. <gasps> you can't say that on air, Virginia. Hi, <laughs> you chicken. <laughs> we, we don't eat eggs. We give eggs away all over yeah. the neighbourhood. Oh, I wish you'd bought me a dozen. I'll remember that. Absolutely. <laughs> please. Yes, you could always use eggs. Yeah. Uh, I dear. have got a fox that is so... Self-confident, it just wanders away across in front of me, stops, looks at me, and, and heads on. Yeah. Look, doesn't see you as a threat. <laughs> I, I, look, I, I wouldn't mind if a fox only took a chook here and there, but it's, but foxes are ghastly creatures, and and what they do when they get into a chook house is just it's something nobody should ever have to see. Yeah, and no, they murder everything. They, they don't just they don't just eat one chook; they chew a head off everybody. Mm. It's, it's just a horrible thing to see. I um, have one for you, Pete. Uh oh. Question for Pete, please. 
discuss dolomite lime use, which plants not to apply on, when to apply, etc. Should not apply at the same time as fertiliser? Thank you. Okay, so the misdemeanour about fertilising and liming and all the rest of it, I know a nurseryman who actually mixes Aquasol with his Roundup. And the idea is that the plant takes in the Aquasol and the Roundup at the same time and it goes, yeah, beauty, I've got a feed, let's grow even quicker. So the Roundup works even quicker. Um, so, so far as, um, look, it's all feeding as far as I'm concerned. So dolomiting and feeding, I generally do at the same time. So you do not go putting dolomite around anything that's your camellias, your rhododendrons, your azaleas, true acid-loving plants, true plants that don't want the soil pH to be altered too quickly. Now, soil pH is a soil pH scale. Um, um, you, you need to sit down and have a look because plants require a pH of around about 5.5 to 6.5 to be happy. Most plants. Then there are the alkaline-loving plants, which need a quick help with dolomite lime. For example, lupins, peonies, clematis, um, and and look. I, I use dolomite lime around my daphnes. Now, when you read the daphne label, it will tell you do not touch dolomite with with lime. But when you walk around and look at people that have got really really healthy daphnes. They will always be around under the eaves and the foundations of houses. And my reasoning for saying Daphne is, is because in the mortar is lime, builder's lime, and it leaches out into the soil. So I'm, I have digressed, sorry. Um, but Daphne's appear to like lime. Um, hellebores love a good feed of lime. So there are a whole bunch of perennials that love it. It's, it's, it's a soil sweetener. Um, there, there are some natives and you really need to, it, it, it's, it's such a diverse field when you get into natives and I'm not, um, by any stretch of the imagination, an expert with natives. Um, I'm more an ornamental horticulture type guy. Um, so, so your, your liming and your feeding can both be done at the same time. That's the answer in the question. Always feed using packet recommendations. Don't just go throwing handfuls of builder's lime instead of dolomite lime because it's two-thirds the price cheaper. Um, so, so you need to use dolomite lime, not some of the harsher ones. There are double burnt limes. Um, so the farmers use in their paddocks to bring the soil pH up quickly to put a next crop in. It's all horses for courses with lime. You need to check your packets for what they can be used for and packet recommendations only. Don't go putting on three times as much because you'll get three times the growth. It doesn't work that way. And that's true of most of the things you put on plants. It's yeah. not a good idea just to double things. Yeah, oh, well. Yeah, it's going to be double as good. <laughs> there's a, there's a formulate, formulation per square metre which plants at one metre seedling stage, annual stage, perennial stage, need for, fertile, for, for healthy plant growth. And, and I was having a conversation at a dinner last night and it's saying, well, you really need to look after your soil organisms really because they're what convert the fertiliser into edible forms of the plants. And really when you think it through, yes, we, we, we really touch on a subject that goes quite deep so far as hurting the goodies in the soil to give you plant growth when if the goodies in the soil are all healthy to start with um, they convert for your plants much easier and, and well see and most of the time I would say you feed your soil you don't well, feed what, your that's plants that's my attitude feed, feed the soil and the soil will feed the plants mm. absolutely but pack, packet recommendations definitely and I I generally think we tend to over fertilize 
People overwater and over fertilize. Oh, I've watered mm. my plant. I water my plant every day, Steve, and I give it a flick every day. Yeah, and, good. And, and well, you're overwatering then, yes. And, and then I scratch under the soil. I only water for a couple of seconds because it's had enough. It's running off. But guess what? It's yeah. never going down to the root system, is it? So the plant's not getting one good deep drink mm. and then being left alone and it doesn't hurt your plant to flag a little bit not not in when we get the artificial summer that we've just had and of course all the new growth and then the, the new roots haven't really started to take up and keep yeah. turgid but it's like it does it doesn't hurt your plant to have a little bit of stress occasionally because mm. that forces it root into growth rather than giving it everything it wants make it go searching so um yes that that's another one of those things isn't it virginia and steve Less water, but more water at one time. And Well, I learnt, of course, because where I am, I don't have any town water. Mm. So I had to learn about water. A good deep drink, some mulch, let them go. And also, in February and early March, unless they're actually dying, let them just look terrible. Mm. Most plants, most of our European, our ornamental plants, have finished everything by that time of the year. Yeah. And I was involved with peonies many, many years ago, and we're, we're mowing them off in February. They've finished everything they're doing. They don't need anything more. They're, they're, they're done. And most of the perennials mm. are all the same. Trees and shrubs, especially the deciduous ones. With growing peonies, do you find that they like a bit of space around them. They don't like being crowded with other plants. Okay, so peonies are broken into, oh, what, about four groups. Mm. There's the little species, which come out of um, the Russia, which I was lucky enough to get half a dozen varieties um, before the, the, the Russian conglomerate was broken up. Then they fall into the trees, they fall into the herbaceous, and they fall into a new group, which are the Itoas, which is a Japanese breeder that's a lifetime work. And he managed to cross a tree and a herbaceous peony. Um, and, and in those come a, an amazing range of colours also. So do peonies need space? If they're herbaceous and tree peonies, they, they're quite happy bedfellows. And, and they, they don't get major fungal diseases. They do get a little bit of wilt, especially coming in the tail of a wet spring. Um, so, so far as some airspace around them, in particularly wet, humid environment, absolutely space them. Um, I'm in the middle of designing and putting a bit of a farm in ourselves. I'm going to be getting bang for buck, so I'm going to be putting them in as thickly as I can humanly get away with it. Thickly? Thickly. You're yeah, going to put yeah. in a peony farm? We, we're, 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 we're being very nice to the ANZ Bank at the moment. <laughs> so we, we are hoping to get ten or 20,000 plants into the ground, yeah. Wow. Um, so, so Nothing we, succeeds like excess. Absolutely. <laughs> and my mother always said, aim high, we can negotiate down later on. Yeah. Um, look, we... we we, we, I, I have done a lot of work, which I haven't really talked about on this station, um, with, with Pacific Coast irises, and I kind of think, well, I've got the room out on the farm for our begonia show, and I've got the acres, and we think, well, why aren't we doing a, a, a begonia and, a, and a, a peony? I'm sorry, a, an iris and a peony show at the same time, and then put the put the plants out in the paddock for people to come and have a look at. And um, yeah, so I'm going down that track, and 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 the paperwork at, at this particular stage for for something in the future, absolutely. But you wouldn't recommend people in Melbourne grow peonies, would you? Okay, there are a whole bunch of New Zealand bred peonies, which, so if you look from Sydney and Auckland, we're, we're almost the same um, area um, humidity wise. These New Zealand bred um, 
varieties are absolutely perfect for humid climates. They're doing them almost up into Queensland now as cut flowers. Uh, yeah, uh, peonies, some of the newer hybrids, and we're not talking the older hybrids. We're, and we're not t- Look, all of the little species are fine for the humidity. Um, and, and but Melbourne isn't humid. It's, it tends to be very hot and dry. What about Melbourne? Look, pe- some, some of the old varieties definitely need a frost. Generally, all of the new varieties flower quite happily in Melbourne, and I've been selling them at Melbourne National Flower and Garden Show for probably a decade now, and, and the people that have bought them have flowered them and are really, really happy. There are some misdemeanours with peonies, so as in the nursery and garden industry, we have tended to confuse people. And to qualify that statement, I say... Plant your tree peonies deep, plant your herbaceous peonies shallow. People have confused the situation and they're planting their herbaceous peonies too deep. If you plant the buds of your herbaceous peony any, peony any more than around about two inches, so what that'd be about 50 millimetres below the soil surface, you will get leaf, but you will never, ever, ever get any flowers. Nice. Um, and it's simply because they're too deep. That's all it is. So you dig them up and replant them? Dig them up and replant them. Now, the Chinese, um, I have been fortunate enough to have a few trips in and out of China over the decades, and the Chinese have a saying, so the first year you plant your peony, it sleeps. The second year you plant your peony, the second year it grows, it weeps, and the third year it leaps. So as a general, you shouldn't expect flowers from a newly planted division the first year. Second year, because human nature is what it is, we just can't break that butt off. We've got to have a look at it. Um, third year, they're happy. They're snuggled in. They're, they're going quite happily. The rules then change if you're buying established potted plants, of course. And if you have got a peony that is planted too deep, what time of year should you dig it up to replant it? Okay, so with peonies, they're making most of their root and nourishment is done while the soil is warm. Um, and I am quite happy to put the slasher or put the lawnmower across the peonies I have in the paddocks. Um, I already have a few. I, I must admit I have started playing. Um, and by February, we're happy to dig and divide for Melbourne National Flower and Garden Show. So if you want to move your peony and you want to put it closer to the surface, dig them from February, March, April into May if you're in the warmer areas. Absolutely dig and divide. Don't be greedy with your division. Always try to keep a minimum of two eyes, three or four, if you can get it. So if, you, if you've got a big established clump that hasn't ever flowered, cut it in half, cut it in thirds um, and replant them. Get as much of the old root as possible. So dig, old, deep. Dig, dig deep. Dig deep. It's a bit backbreaking because they are they have massive food storage in that root system because it has to put fairly showy flowers up. So, yeah, get as much root as possible. We have a call. Oh, goodness. Yes, isn't this wonderful? We have a call from Bron in Knox. Good morning, Bron. Mm. Good morning, Bron. Uh-oh. Oh, Uh-oh. Dear. 
we've we've got lights flashing. We've got a green light, but there's nobody. Anyway, so um, I, I was fortunate enough a few years ago, a, a, a botanist by the name of Will McLuhan, who worked mm-hmm. at a Fadar nursery over in the UK, went into Russia while the Soviet Union was still together. And when I was in my wholesale days, he, he sourced a whole bunch of the little specie ones, Steve. Yeah, gorgeous and things. Like th- th- there was a Moidii, there was Bugaristiana, there was Sterniana, there was uh, a couple of others. And they're only, own, they only grow about 30 centimetres high um, but they're flowers when we talk peonies we're thinking those great big blousy things well they don't do that at all they're yeah. only only four, five, six petals each and they come from yeah. yellow oh Molokovichiana the little yeah. Polish one anyway I, I, I was lucky enough to source this collection I've got I'm going to try another call because we have another call which I'm very disappointed about so let's see if this one will work Ta-da! Michael. Yes, Michael from... No. Hello. No, okay, we'll just ignore those... And they, co- they come in yellows and they come in pinks and they, 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 they're only simple little things but they flower much earlier than the others and um, by middle of spring Steve they've finished like yeah, a, oh yeah they're very flower. ephemeral yeah. um, they set a little bit of seed and anyone that's never germinated peony seed so so pe- a peony seed my goodness I'm doing a lot of talking this morning aren't I um, anyone that's ever tried to germinate peony seed they're one of the things that they have a double dormancy so they have an epigeal and a hypogeal dormancy one means roots one means shoots so the peonies have to, their little seeds have to put down their, their main root first and then they get that chill. So in the warmth when the seeds set, they, they put down their little roots and then they sit there, do absolutely nothing until the frost mm. hits them. And here we go. Have we got a... Well, a, let's have another go on line eight. We I'll will... keep talking until we get a good morning from somebody. <laughs> hello. Is anyone, it's Michael there. Yes, hello. Uh, good, good morning. morning. Excellent. Thank morning. you, Michael. Yeah, that, that's okay. I don't know. Um, just, um, just in regards to snails and slugs around here up in uh, Forest Hill, it's, it, 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 as you probably know, it gets ridiculous uh, when they when they do infest. Um, and I'm just, um, I know, you know, deer traps and all that sort of thing are the sort of solutions. But, um, but I'm finding that I'm like, you know, sort of pick them off. Um, ad nauseum sort of thing. It's a vexing problem. And I'm just um, keen to know if there's any um, more broad-based ways of dealing with them, um, maybe um, something to do with the changing the um, condition of the soil, whatever soil um, cover there that I've got. Um, so you do try the beer solutions? I have, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, they just... They just, you know, keep coming like nobody's it, it, business. Sorry to cut you off. If you if you lay some planks down and you water yeah. under the ground, uh-huh. while, and then put the planks on them, especially in those cool areas, yeah. they will tend to use the, and and keep that moist. So if the rest of yeah. your garden's dry or the rest of your area is dry, and they've got a yep. little dark, cool, moist place to go yeah. in and spend some time, yeah. it's it's a mechanical form of, of controlling them. Sure. You'll need to dispose of them humanely. Yeah, um, I'll yeah. tap point, dancing. I'll point that out. Um, but but it's, it's so so um, using um, traps for them. Is, yeah. is a good way because you, you'll be surprised after a uh-huh. week or so how many are actually congreg- congregating yeah. It does there. raise the other issue of the opposite 
issue is that we often create gardens that make lovely places for snails to hide. Places like dry stone walls, um, you know, things lying on the ground uh, that yeah. snails will congregate under. And yeah. so they're the places snails will hide until they come out and do the damage. So what Pete's yeah. suggesting is putting something down to attract them to that spot so then yep. you can then physically deal with them. Um, but also it's a good idea to try and make sure there's not too many uh, gaps behind rocks and things like that where they can get in and under and hide in there as well. So um, I would certainly deal with that. Uh, the problem, of course, is always that you will end up with snails and you'll do what you can to get rid of them, but your neighbours probably aren't. And oh, so no, no, you're, no. you're going to keep getting reinfected by other people's no. snails um, yeah. and throwing them over the fence into your no. neighbours doesn't work. Absolutely not. No, 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 I wouldn't do that. Uh, no, and, no. and I do think that you must be terribly careful of the... Um, desire to poison because mm. as soon as you yeah. everything you see in your garden is eaten by something else mm. yeah that's right and that's so right. as soon as you go poisoning you're caking out more than just you intend they, 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 will, they will even go and hide just in pots if, if the wind blows a pot yeah. on its side they will even go and congregate in there they, they, they're not fussy where they hide and well if no. you tur- if you turn up something they do collect underneath yeah. it which is a yep. fabulous way to collect them yep yeah, I think that's a bit of bank, bank ideas are probably the way to go. I, you know, I don't like killing things, but... Um, um, I don't mind you know, killing just, them. I just don't want to kill extra things. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are people that Sorry. will argue they've got a right to exist too, and, and that's fine, but, but uh, yeah. we, we unfortunately make the, make the climate where numbers yeah. sometimes get a bit out of balance and sometimes a bit of interference is what's necessary. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. That's right. If, if there weren't, if there weren't, there's only like a, re, a few, a few around, sort of thing. It wouldn't bother me, the sort of thing. But uh, um, it just, it does get um, overwhelming sometimes. But I, I'll certainly give that a try. And um, good on oh, you, Michael. It'll, it'll, it'll work. Yeah. Have a go. Yep. Best of luck. Yeah. Best of luck. All the best. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Now, we have another request, which is Lizzie in Geelong. Hello, team. I'm after some suggestions for a small canopy tree for a back garden. We have lots of sun and we need some shade. Thanks for the best gardening program. Yeah, well, that's oh, very sweet of you. Thank you, you Lizzie. All right, well, <coughs> now my, Geelong. Yeah, so you've got to think of the climate down there. My is... immediate response for a small... I usually go straight to crab apples, but my absolute adored... For the heat is the Judas tree, mm. or, or little Chinese elm. Little Chinese elms are nice little one, and take that wind down there too. The, my Chinese elms are in the paddock, and they cope really well. Mm. I, yeah, so there's a few yeah. ideas, and, and you um, can clean stem them. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, actually, if you do need something that makes an umbrella and doesn't grow very tall, a slightly offbeat suggestion: there is the most beautiful horizontal hawthorn that's grafted onto two meter two-and-a-half-metre standards, and its branches just go out dead flat. It's not a weeper. It's, it's dead flat, so it's an open umbrella. And I've got one in the garden at home, which unfortunately the possums are giving a bit of a hiding to at the moment. Um, it has small dark green narrow leaves, little white hawthorn blossoms, little red hawthorn berries, and all the branches go out dead flat. And uh, uh, I know uh, there's a certain lady whose name will be quite known to practically everybody listening, Tammy Fraser, who bought one from me many years ago, and they use it like a tennis court pavilion. It's Mm. right next to the tennis court, and they put all the chairs under the horizontal hawthorn, and it makes this fabulous flat canopy. And, it's a ri- and, of course, hawthorns are tough. So that could be a possibility, uh, and you've already got height with it when you buy it because it's going to be on a standard. 
yeah, I know, and they don't, and they're not cheap, cheap, cheap because they're grafted onto standards. But nonetheless, you get what you pay for. For around about two hundred dollars, you've got a, a tree that's already got a canopy on it, and it's and it's six or seven feet tall, which I think is actually quite good value. That's eccentric. It is. It's a slightly offbeat suggestion, but it is a fabulous little tree. And if anybody wants to see one, of course, if they come up to my garden this coming next weekend, they'll be able to see mine, which has got a set of uh, chairs and a little table sitting under it. it. And it's a little sparse because of the possums, but it's working. And I go back to mine, which is the Judas tree. You can get a pink version or apparently I haven't got one yet, a white version. The white one's charming, but they're both beautiful. I think the Judas tree, I think it's very important not to get this the forest pansy version of the Judas. Because, yeah, yeah. well, they're Canadian red buds and they're actually North American and they're much more heat uh, intolerant and yes. drought yes. intolerant than what the true Judas tree Whereas is. the Judas tree, which is Siliquestrum, comes mm. from Palestine. Yeah, all around the Mediterranean. And there's Chinensis, which is even pinker again. A little bit bigger leaf, but um, still flowers the same up and down the barks. And we'll take the heat? Take the heat, absolutely. Yeah, that forest pansy, it's a beautiful thing. I've, I've got it finally. I mean, we're at quite a high altitude. Um, it, it's okay. It mm. does still burn on the odd occasion. And, and, of course, you've got to bear in mind that one's a grafted one, so occasionally you get the lovely green suckers coming away. So, yes. um, just, just. Uh, but the, yeah. other, the other thing I do find very uh, amazingly hardy in my garden is the crab apples yeah and there's lots and lots of selections and they're beautiful but they're also grafted as Stephen was mentioning with the grafted um what were you talking about just a minute ago the hawthorns the hawthorn there there are the grafted standard crabs as well which um do the same sort of canopies but you can just buy a crab apple you can just buy a crab apple and you don't have to go for the common ones there's lots of interesting different selections out there so they're really good now we have a very good point from burn here morning burn Avoid using sugarcane mulch as snails love, love the it. sugars and will tell all their mates and have a party in your patch. <laughs> Pea straw and lucerne seems better. Mm. Well, I don't like the sugarcane mulch because I think it mats and the water doesn't get through. Mm. I, I don't use it because of the sugar problems and because of the ant problems. Um, but um, the, the pea straw is a great one. Well, Pea stra- and I don't mind the peas coming up. No. Well, no. you pull them out, lay them on the ground, and you've got more pea straw. Exactly. So you're actually, it's you know, extra. So that was very useful. Bron, my Agapiti serpens is doing beautifully in a narrow pot. The visible root is taking up half the diameter of the pot. Should I repot or no, leave it as it is? Leave it as it is. I've got two in pots at home, and they're, they're lignotubers or cordexes or whatever you want to call it. They're in big concrete pots. The cordexes are almost covered the whole top of the pot and they're fantastic because they're epiphytes in the wild. They grow up in the forks of trees. They don't need a lot of root system space. I'm the same as you, Stephen. I've got one that I've had for about 30 years in the same pot and it just gets a bit of fertiliser. Yeah, just feed it and just make sure it doesn't dry right out. Yep. 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 They're, they're very tough plants, and the cordex can, in fact, be part of the character of the plant. Of the plant, And yeah. don't bury them. People tend to cover them over. So or, or, they, or they think it's, it's just something wrong with, my, with, with it. Yeah, so, yeah, so leave them exposed. Can we find a dwarf kaffir lime? Well, I'm assuming that there probably is one grafted onto a dwarfing understock. Um, so ba- basic, basically, when the plants are grafted for vigour, 
Um, and about a day or 15 years ago, they started cutting growing all of the range of citrus. So the cutting growing ones on their own rootstocks tend to stay a bit lower growing because they're not on. Um, um, we've had this discussion about rootstocks with mm. trying with um, I forget the, the the varieties of rootstocks, but generally they're grafted for bigger, more vigorous plants. Those cutting grown plants and there's lots so, of them around now. So avoid a grafting. grafted. Yeah, for, just for the for the dwarfing ability. I have one now. Obviously, a, a kaffir lime in my place is it's a bit cold, so that probably keeps it a bit smaller, but it's taken. 10 years to get as tall as me and I've just decided it's too tall and I'm just pruning it down and yeah, it's quite happy to be pruned. Oh, yeah, you can cut so them quite would, hard. I would say definitely don't get a, a grafted and then once in a couple of years just prune it to size. Yeah. I've, I've got a cutting grown kaffir lime at home which I've had, which I have to keep under cover obviously and it's only about a metre by a metre now. That's all it's done. Um, so and just how many kaffir lime leaves does, does one need? Depends how much gin and tonic one takes. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. Uh, <laughs> it's lovely in a gin and tonic. Really? Absolutely That's, lovely. Oh, well, yes. you can also freeze them. All that sort of stuff, freezes. Take it straight out of the freezer mm. and use it straight away. Don't let mm. it thaw. Just chop it and use it. Mm. Mm. No, I th- and I put kaffir limes in my curry all the time. Yeah, all the time. Mm. Chicken curry with kaffir lime. Yeah. Absolutely. You just throw them in. I'm very fond of a kaffir lime. Yes. I have to say, I'm not sure we should be saying kaffir, though. No, we're not. We're meant no, to call it something else. Yeah, I've, I've got look. I've got a citrus that I've had in a pot. I, I got it from a cutting out of um, the the basin. The basin used to have this weird seedling lemon up there, and I I've had it for about thirty years. And that that plant's only about two meters, and it has the most amazing crinkled fruit. I must show you next yeah. time you're up there. And it goes orange. It's it's a lemon, but it goes orange and it's the roughest most horrible looking thing and those fruit they mummify and you can cut them six months after picking them and mm. they're still squeezable yeah there's a by the by well there we go so i think we now need to say goodbye to our listeners say so thank you very much we've had an absolutely lovely show um we have next week we won't be on air the following two weeks after that we will be on air and then we will be playing our best shows from the last year. So I hope you continue to, les- to listen right through that and then we will be back towards the... Well, not towards, on exactly the first Sunday of February. All right. So, so we all get a break. <laughs> and <sighs> next weekend, Stephen's Garden is open. Oh, yes, please come up and visit me. I'd love to see you next weekend. There are two gardens in Macedon open for, for you to go and see and Plant Trust listeners... On the 10th, we're having our garden, our, our Christmas party in Macedon, and we will also go to both those absolutely excellent Do gardens. let us know if you're coming, though, from the respective plant trust so we can cater. Absolutely. We must know. Thank you, everybody. Hope you've enjoyed the show. See you next time. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.